The sports world has been greening itself for most of the century, but despite these efforts, most fans have no idea. That changes now. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. Hosted by Lou Blaustein, Green Sports Pod highlights the successes, challenges, and opportunities to green the games we love to watch and play, and give you the chance to hear from the athletes who are taking positive environmental actions. Learn more and subscribe to the show today at greensportsblog.com. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. I'm your host, Lou Blaustein, and today we are blessed to have one of the more interesting people in the green sports movement, and that is Fran Roiland, who is a soccer player coming from the legendary University of North Carolina program, and now with the Colorado Rapids. And she also works in the world of methane remediation and reduction. And methane, as some of our listeners I'm sure know, is 30 to 50 to, I'm sure Fran will tell us, even more times more intense a greenhouse gas than CO2. This is an unusual combination in a human being. And so I am really happy to welcome Fran to Green Sports Pod. Fran, great to see you. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Lou. That was a very generous <laughs> introduction of me. I'm happy to be here. Fantastic. And I actually missed one key point also, which is that Fran is an eco-athletes champion. So we will get into the eco-athletes part down the line here in a bit. First, though, let's get into Fran's background, which really started in soccer and she had a long standing desire to play at UNC, which I'm sure a lot of people do because it's top program in the country. Not many people actually get to do it. Fran did. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, I'm a Tar Heel, not, they say, born, bred, and dead. I'm not born a Tar Heel, but I was bred a Tar Heel for sure and will die a Tar Heel dead. I was in Chapel Hill, you know, ever since I was I was little and would go to the, the women's soccer games. They were just 10 minutes down the road. So, I mean, I grew up in that environment and went to the UNC summer soccer camps and all of that. So it was just a program I always wanted to join if I could, but I knew it was going to be a big stretch because, like you said, it's almost every women's soccer player's dream to play there. I don't know if you want me to go into what ended up happening in the end, but... <laughs> well, first of all, I just want to say... I love that. I'm a Tar Heel born, I'm a Tar Heel bred, and when I die, I'll be a Tar Heel dead. That's just classic. Well, I know it was a slog. You know, give us some of the highlights and how you kind of had to really work hard in a super competitive environment with a super competitive coach. Right. So, you know, honestly, I was a little unsure in high school if I was fully into the idea of playing college soccer or not, because academics were also super important to me. At the time, I thought, I wanted to go be a doctor or go into public health like my parents. And I wasn't sure that I would be able to do that if I did play college soccer. But anyways, I mean, having a hometown school like Chapel Hill is such a blessing. And so that was always one of my top choices. And the closer and closer I got, I figured, you know, why the heck not just try to, you know, go out for the team. 
and see what happens. And it, you know, there's actually a funny story where by, you know, of course I wanted to play at Carolina and I was going to the summer camps and reaching out to the coaches and trying to get their attention. But I actually was playing one of my high school teammates named Alex Kimball had already been recruited to play at UNC. And so the coach, Anson Dorrance, would frequently come. He was frequently field sided at our games in high school watching Alex play. And so, you know, I would kind of write to him and say, hey, you know, I'll be on the field too if you want to. I wear number nine, like check me out. (laughs) And Alex was a really good friend of mine. So grateful to her for being such a superstar because I got a little bit of exposure that way. But in the end, it wasn't enough to to fully earn a spot on the team before college, but was invited out to preseason. So, and coming into my freshman year, I trained really hard over the summer and, you know, tried to be fitness ready for the, for the tests that are always a part of preseason and did pretty well, but again, wasn't offered a full roster spot at that point. So ended up playing on the UNC club team in my first fall. And had a, you know, honestly, just an amazing experience there. Made my best friends in college, my best friend to this day on that team, but was invited back in my freshman spring to train with varsity again. And it was at that point that I think with a a longer enough time of them getting to know me as a player and a person and a student, they offered me a place on the varsity team. And I played for three years after that. And for those of you who aren't, familiar that much with what UNC soccer is and was when Fran was on the team a few years back. They are like the UConn women's basketball team back in the day, the New England Patriots. I hate to shout them out, but whatever. The facts are the facts. They are the dominant program. So to be a part of that varsity, that is quite a feat. And so while... Fran, you were doing this and working with this incredible team. You were also working on your academic pursuits and talk a little about that and where you decided to go. Yeah, it's definitely been an arc for me. I grew up in a household with two doctors for parents and lots of family members who have worked in the medical field. So I always, you know, looked up to them and thought I would follow similarly in some way. But slowly throughout college, I, you know, my interests evolved slowly, you know, I don't even say slowly in the span of four years, I moved from medicine into public health, which there's obviously some natural connections there. But what really started to interest me were the environmental factors that are causing poor human health, such as air quality issues. And I can tell you about specific times abroad that really shaped my like that transformation for me. But ultimately, when I left college, I was super interested in energy and climate factors that are driving, you know, climate change, which is obviously tied to really poor health outcomes all over the world. And so ever since then, my work has been more focused on the greenhouse gas emissions and the climate aspect of things. But I, you know, this has always started for me, it's been motivated by health impacts. And it sounds like in today's parlance, the term that really gets a lot of usage is climate justice or climate injustice. And the idea that the people least able to adjust or adapt to the impacts of climate change, including the public, the pollution aspects 
as well as the global warming aspects, these people are the least able to adapt. And is that something that kind of came into your calculus as well? Yeah. And, you know, this shows up in so many ways, but what was really impactful for me was in my sophomore year summer, summer was the only time you could study abroad, you know, as a college soccer player, because fall is main season and spring is you also don't want to miss because it's just, you know, there's too much good training and preparation going on. So I went to Argentina in the summer and my host mother had really bad asthma. And there were days when the air pollution in the city of Buenos Aires was so bad that she couldn't leave the house. She said she wouldn't go grocery shopping. She wouldn't take the metro. She wouldn't even leave because she would just have coughing fits. And I thought, gosh, that's horrible. What a poor quality of life. And, you know, how wrong is it that people don't even feel safe to leave their houses? And this is something I've even experienced in Colorado with wildfires just turning the air completely black. But as you mentioned, you know, the effects for people who are much less well off in the world, in different parts of the world, are experiencing it's even worse than people like me in the United States. So that's certainly something I think about. And so after college, you're climate, greenhouse gas emissions pursuits took you to France. And also, soccer stayed in the picture. Talk a little bit about that experience. Yes, there was a first important stop right before France, which was Washington, D.C., which was my very first job out of college. It was a fellowship at the Carnegie Endowment. And that is was so important. I had really two big things that happened to me there. First was I met a mentor who is still my boss today at RMI and has just continued to be a really important force in my life. RMI being Rocky Mountain Institute. Continue, please. Thank you. We actually, (laughs) that's funny. At RMI, it recommends to, we put on cat ears if we use an acronym and don't properly explain it. It's like a visual reminder to (laughs) always explain your acronyms for people who might not get them. So I should be wearing cat ears. But anyways, I met a mentor, a lifelong mentor who has helped me and, you know, really just inspired me to stay in the methane space that I'm in. The other thing that was so monumental about the DC experience was I was not playing competitive soccer for the first time. And even just in the span of the one year, I missed it so much that I was driven to go back and play more. And for me, I knew that that those opportunities would be more widely available in Europe because of the way they have such they have more tiers for competitive women to play. And in France, for example, there's Ligue 1, which is PSG and Lyon and all the really strong teams that you've probably heard of. And then there's even two, you know, League 3, League 4, League 5. It just keeps going. And we don't really have a structure like that in the U.S. where there's no such thing as second division women's professional soccer right now. There's no way to be promoted into the NWSL, the National Women's Soccer League right now. There is no relegation and promotion system in men's or women's soccer in the US. It doesn't exist. Right. Hopefully we're moving towards that, but we don't have it yet. So anyways, I told my boss at the time I, you know, I miss competitive soccer. I really want to go play in Europe. And with her help was able to find I still can't believe this happened, a job that continued to allow me to work on methane, specifically fossil fuel methane at the International Energy Agency in Paris, and then find a Parisian-based soccer team that I could play for. I mean, that is incredible. Your boss pulled some fantastic strings right there. (laughs) Yeah, she's amazing. 
So talk a little bit about methane in particular and what drew you into that and what your work has been going back to the beginning, perhaps in D.C., France, and then back in the States. Gosh, where to start? I think there's a couple of things about methane that make it unique and really compel me to work on it. As you kind of opened with in the intro, it is an extremely powerful, potent greenhouse gas, tens of times more effective at warming atmosphere than carbon dioxide. What is the best number to use? Because I hear so many different numbers and I want to be right. And I'm going to go be a little on the edge here and say 120, <laughs> which is the number as immediately as methane is released and immediately as CO2 is released, methane is over 100 times more potent than CO2. That's not the one you're going to read in the news. As time goes on, its effect lessens and lessens and lessens. But we're increasingly starting to quote the higher number because this is so urgent, right? We're not talking about 100 years from now, in which case the number is 30. We're talking about literally now or in the next couple years, in which case the number is somewhere between 80 and 120. So that is news for, I bet, a bunch of our listeners. Folks, when you hear methane 30 times more potent a greenhouse gas than CO2, that's for perhaps a century or so out. Now it's 100 times plus. So back to the original question, how did you get involved in methane in particular? And what kind of work have you been doing? Yeah, I think a couple things. So it was at my first job in DC, as I mentioned, where I really began studying methane leaks that come from the oil and gas industry. And I think one of the things that makes it so compelling is methane's not a gas that you can see visually, but this means that there are a lot of leaks of it that can go undetected or unnoticed by industry or by anybody else. So there's this really this aspect, we call it making emissions visible or bringing it to light so that someone can actually see something and do something about it. And I became, you know, this is where my nerdiness starts to come out, but I became super interested in satellite technologies that are able to detect methane leaks. And the reason that I think this is so cool is because oil and gas is a global industry. You know, it occurs all over the world in the Middle East and in Africa and South America and in the United States and in Russia. And we need technologies that can detect those leaks everywhere. We can't just be doing it in a couple of places. This is a, a global problem and it needs solutions that can match that sort of magnitude. So I really started to study the ways that we can be detecting and seeing methane and getting a better grasp on just how big this problem is. And I've actually seen, I think it was on 60 Minutes, this is maybe a couple of years ago, where they went with someone who had this satellite technology and could, I think it was in the American West, who could, you know, you could actually visualize the methane leaks. So two things come to mind. Number one, how committed is the fossil fuel industry, in your opinion, to really making sure that methane leaks dramatically decrease, because that would be a huge difference. And what can be done to increase that interest from the industry? Yes, I'm of several hearts and minds. I mean, there is definitely a spectrum of, of the industry actors in terms of how much I believe they're genuinely invested in this issue. 
you know, there are several incentives that would generally favor them. Like they have reason to want to address this problem. In some cases, it is economically favorable for them to stop leaking methane because methane is the natural gas that comes out of the pipes in our house. It heats our houses and is in our stoves if you have a gas stove. And so it is the product that some of these companies are trying to produce. And why would you just want to let some of your product be leaking into the atmosphere? That's not that's not the goal. And back to your question about justice and like what we call it, just energy transition. The fossil fuel industry is a way of life for millions of people on the planet right now. And in some ways they inherited their situation. And so it's very easy to, I'd say, make the enemy of the entire industry. And if certainly they're to blame for a lot of the mess that's been made, but there are also a lot of individuals who I think are, they're not proud of it. And they would also like to see the industry significantly shift. So I try to keep that in mind. And I'm with you. In fact, I don't know if you know of Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, the climate scientist and climate communicator extraordinaire, and she lives in Lubbock, Texas, because she's a professor at Texas Tech University in the oil belt, in the most, also one of the most conservative, from a political point of view, congressional districts in the country. And she tries to talk climate change there. And she always starts her conversations with, you know, when she talks to people from the fossil fuel industry, first with thank you. Thank you for giving us our modern way of life that has been developed over the last 150 years. However, that is true, she says, and I'm paraphrasing, but now we know more. And now we know we have to change. And we have to change fast. And we need you to be a part of that change. That's kind of her... I don't know if that resonates with you. Totally. Well, that's a step further. I've ever seen it taken, but that's a really probably effective way to communicate to certain communities. So, yeah. And so talk about coming back from France and your work with the Rocky Mountain Institute back on this side of the pond. Sure. I was in France for less than a year up until I got to play a, a full season with my French team. League two, right? League two, that's right. Which so, is pretty high up there. It is the second division national league. And that meant I got to travel around and see a lot of France on the weekend, at least see a lot of their soccer fields. And playing some pretty competitive football, I imagine. Yeah. And I mean, gosh, it was such a fun time. We It was totally unexpected that our team actually finished first. And we finished first in the second division that year, which meant this is where it came down to a really hard decision, right? Because Technically, my my position at IEA is up, and I told myself, you know, I I might just play a year here, but you win the league means you're going to be promoted to League One the next season. So I did have this internal moment where I was like, am I really going to miss ooh, the opportunity to, to play? <laughs> yeah, League One. I mean, that's that's like PSG. Yes, and I ended up not playing, <laughs> but I I did follow the results closely. The goal differential with teams like PSG and Lyon, I won't repeat, but (laughs) (laughs) what an opportunity to get to play in that game anyways. Yeah. So you decided, okay, methane is my future. I did. And things got weird in 
large European cities in early COVID, you know, with lockdowns. And I miss my family and a whole host of reasons I wanted to come back. And I was committed. I actually let this part out, but I had been committed to working at RMI before I even went over to France and I asked for a bit of a of a deferral and they agreed. So anyways, I ended up at RMI. I've been here. Yeah, I just passed my three-year mark a couple weeks ago. And it's funny how much I've watched the methane space change in those three years. I mean, obviously we got a in the US, we got a change of administration and they have quickly, they've moved surprisingly quickly on some major historic methane-related action, at least on the policy front. You may have heard, some people on the podcast may have heard about the methane fee, which is actually going to be, it's the first carbon tax the United States has really ever successfully been able to pass, and it happens to be on methane. So it's just been so encouraging to watch this space grow. I mean, I had no idea right when I left college that I'd be working on this, but I feel very motivated to continue to work on it in the next the next few years. And I am very keen on carbon pricing. And so this really heartened me. I volunteered for many years with Citizens Climate Lobby, which lobbies for a price on carbon, not just on methane, but on all carbon-based products. And it's a hard slog. So this is, uh, you know, an important advance. And I know there's also more on carbon pricing going on in Europe more broadly. Now I want to bring up something that has to do with soccer, but not so much about your playing. This has to do with the World Cup on the men's side that was contested in Qatar in November and December, and obviously, you know, Argentina won. But Fran wrote a very interesting piece, which used bracketology, which most of us here in the U.S. associate with college basketball, but used the brackets of the World Cup to educate readers on the fossil fuel energy impact of each or many of the major fossil fuel producing countries. So talk a little bit about that piece. This is so cool. And something, honestly, I wish I had had the guts to do earlier on, but which is use other analogies, use pop culture references to talk about my work because it can get pretty dry and technical. But as you said, the World Cup was going on. Obviously, I'm a huge soccer fan and player. And so I put this together with something that I do in my work, which is, We call it differentiation of oil and gas production. But what it really means is comparing the climate footprints of different fossil fuel production across the globe, because as it turns out, they're not all one and the same. Different resources are produced very differently. They are physically and chemically really different. And this means that their emissions are not all of the same. They can be quite varying. So, for example, that could mean oil produced in Venezuela has a different carbon footprint than oil produced in Saudi Arabia, for example. Exactly. It's like you read the blog. (laughs) Yeah, it was like, it was such a great piece. Continue. So I thought of that as, you know, I kind of gamified that a little bit and matched it up with this concept of countries being put into World Cup groups and having to face off more or less. And of course, the difference here is 
it's more deterministic on the oil and gas side. When we have our modeling, we do know more or less who wins out in terms of having the cleaner emissions profile. And in soccer, anything can happen. But I still use this sort of bracket format, as you mentioned, and basically put countries head to head based off of how low is your emissions intensity for producing oil and gas and, you know, kind of derived a winner that way. And I think it it ended up being a really fun piece. As I read it, I was surprised about a couple of the things, you know, a couple of the countries that quote unquote won versus countries that I thought might have done better or less bad, depending on how you look at it. What were some of the main takeaways? Yeah, some people would probably be surprised at a country like the US not being the winner. I don't know if that's necessarily what you're alluding to, but we have a lot of methane leaks going on. Yeah. We are told by many in the industry that, oh, we need more domestic production because we produce the cleanest oil. We don't produce the dirtiest, but I would really challenge that. I think it needs to be We would say, if we think that's true, it needs to be proven with measurement, not just because on paper we're the cleanest. But when you go out and look for methane leaks, a lot of them are concentrated in a lot of the U.S. basins and elsewhere. But anyways, yeah, the U.S. didn't fully come out on top in this bracketology. A lot of oil production in the Middle East, due to primarily like geologic reasons, is extracted what we say, you know, with pretty low energy inputs, meaning you don't have to use a lot of engines and lift to get it out, which means it tends to be relatively cleaner. And if you couple that with managing your methane emissions, you tend to have cleaner production. So what we're saying is that contrary to what may be implied from the, especially the big US producers, the Saudis and other countries in the Middle East region actually have a lower carbon footprint per unit of oil or unit of product produced. Is that a fair way to say it? Yeah, that is, at least based off of what we know now. And there are things every country, every operator can do to be better. But the main goal of this piece was just to show as it exists right now, there is a huge range in performance. Don't think these things are all the same. So going forward, What would you like to work on and what kind of impact would you like to have? I like to say that, and this is very maybe, you know, optimistic and not super realistic, but if we as like a, you know, methane reduction community are successful on the timelines that I hope to be, I'd like to be out of a job, you know, in 10 or 20 years on methane. I want to be able to work on something else. Like I want this problem done, taken care of. I actually love that goal. I think that is one of the best answers to that question that I've heard since I've been doing these podcasts and these interviews. I want to be out of a job because the problem is solved. I want you to be out of that job too. I want you to have a job, just not that job. And maybe you can share with the audience out of the total carbon footprint from the production of fossil fuels, what percent is methane? Like, can you dimensionalize the methane problem for our listeners? So in the global, if you think about it as a big pie, a big pie chart for all of the human emitted methane, anthropogenic methane sources, generally it's about a third from fossil fuels. So coal, which I didn't talk much about, I work mostly on oil and gas, but coal emits methane, coal, oil, gas, that's about a third. 
Then you've got the waste sector. So waste, water, and landfills, you know, about another third of the pie. And then agriculture. So cattle, dairies, livestock, and even things like rice kind of make up the other chunk. I mean, that's approximated. So that's kind of how it's split up among global sources. And then there's natural sources of methane too, like wetlands, among others. But if we get our methane leaks for fossil fuel production under control, what kind of impact can that have on total carbon emissions? Yeah, it's huge. And I mean, based off of what we know now, like of those chunks of the pie, right now, the fossil fuel methane is some of the most actionable. And as I mentioned, a lot of it is economically viable compared to methane coming off of landfills isn't, I mean, it has to be captured and then processed into, you know, pipeline quality gas for it to be useful. But like methane is the product of the fossil fuel industry. (laughs) So in some ways, out of all of those sections of the pie, it has the most ready solutions right now. So there's just really no excuse to have as much methane emissions as there are coming out of this sector. And I think it's viewed as significant opportunities to make a dent in it before 2030. I mean, this is a really near-term goal that we have for the sector. And if the goals get met by 2030, then there's a better chance you'll be out of a job in in this sector in 2033, 10 years down the road. (laughs) In 10 years, exactly. Okay, so 2030, and really, folks, We've got to push on carbon pricing and capturing methane leaks so that there's big opportunities for carbon reduction and we can get Fran a job in a different sector. (laughs) To be clear, I do think it'll take longer. The solutions for like agriculture, for example, are probably a little bit behind. All right. So we've got other issues. (laughs) Yes. Let me ask you this. So talk a little bit about How has your experience as an athlete impacted your work in this methane sector, which the way I look at it from outside, I'm behind in the game. It's like pushing, pushing. I wonder if an athlete's mentality helps. This isn't a direct answer, but I think that I've continued to play competitively in Colorado, not at the level of League Two in France, but being driven to still have athletic goals, honestly, just gives me so much life and energy to also come to work and work on challenging things. So I know I like to stay busy. And so I think it's a really, it fits really well into my lifestyle. As far as athletes mentality, I mean, I do think, I mean, I work with a really large team of people. And if you think of not just my RMI team, but the bigger community that works on methane reduction, there's certainly a lot of parallels between like, you know, I was never a striker. I didn't score the goals. I don't have to be on the microphone. I don't have to be, you know, acknowledged first in any of the projects. You just want to be a facilitator that makes it happen. You know, I played center mid. That's kind of how I've seen myself as a connector between the different lines on the soccer field. And in my work, I think about it similarly There's scientists, there's literal rocket scientists working on this. There are people in the government, there are people in the industry. And you have to, you know, think about if you think about it in the sense of playing between the lines, make all of those knowledge and perspectives connect. And so speaking about what you're going to be doing next, I know what you're going to be doing next in part is going to be in Palo Alto, California, 
and not at the Rocky Mountain Institute in the Rocky Mountains. So share a little bit about what you're going to be doing at Stanford and and what you'll be learning there and what that could lead to. Yes. It's so new. It's funny to even hear myself say, I'm going to be in Palo Alto. And I've been telling my coworkers, I'm obviously moving, but I'm I'm not going far in the thematic sense. I was very intentional about the Stanford program because they have such a strong, go figure, methane research program. <laughs> Who knew? And so I have been, I'm planning to do some research with a specific principal investigator research there around methane detection worldwide. And this will span sectors, but it will have, it'll still have the energy sector angle. The degree I'm getting in is in energy engineering because I really want to deepen my understanding of how energy systems work because I think that's really important to understand if you're trying to change, you know, transform the energy systems that we have today. So those are some of my goals for going going there. And is playing soccer also part of it? Yes, but it pains me to say it a little bit because Stanford was such one of our rivals in college. I mean, it was Duke and Florida State and Stanford were up there as the teams we hated the most <laughs> or we considered, you know, our strongest competitors. But obviously my, my time is up playing for the NCAA, but they have women's club programs and there are other Bay Area teams that I will probably go out for. And I'm super excited because the NWSL, they've announced is going to have a Bay Area team starting in 2024. So we'll see what happens there. And then last question, as I mentioned earlier, you're part of the Eco Athletes Champions Network. What attracted you to Eco Athletes and talk a little bit about being a champion? Yes. Earlier this year, it was about at the same time when I had this idea to write that blog that we talked about, the World Cup blog. I just have been feeling more and more like leaning into both of the things that I care so much about and figuring out how they can be force multipliers for one another. And somehow along on similar timeframes was connected to you and to the program. And I thought, wow, gosh, this sounds so great. It would be awesome to talk to people who play totally different sports and work in really different parts of the environment and climate sector and see how they're thinking about all of this. So feels like I'm just getting started with all of the ways that the eco-athletes community can help out one another. I think that given your way of being a connector and seeing things like bracketology, I can see connecting eco-athletes champions to methane. I can see all sorts of connections that you can be at that center mid of and being a force multiplier for good. And so thank you so much for sharing your experiences, your perspectives, your work on methane, and good luck at Stanford. And I'm glad that you're continuing on this work and that you're part of the Eco Athletes Champions Network will only be a good thing for us. So thank you so much, Fran. And thank you for listening to Green Sports Pod. You can follow us and listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. And we will see you again next time. Awesome. Thanks so much, Lou, for having me. 
You've been listening to Green Sports Pod, hosted by Lou Blaustein. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And head on over to greensportsblog.com, the source for news and commentary at the intersection of green and sports. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Green Sports Pod.